0: Talking books on song 106 to 108.
1: In an era when letter writing is fast disappearing, uh, not just as an art, but as kind of as a as a form of communication, this set of correspondence these four volumes this long correspondence from 1928 right the way through to 97 is actually a really important correspondence and one of the things that Isaiah does really well in his letters is he bears witness to to his age to the times that he lived in so I think that if you're interested in history if you're interested in intellectual life of the 20th century if you're interested in those things and this is a wonderful source these letters and, and and I'd really recommend them. In a good introduction wrote poet, biographer and writer Samuel Johnson, something must be discovered and something concealed. The intellectual appetite must be stimulated, but not satiated. He that reveals too much or promises too little equally defeats his own purpose. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to venture into the scholarly world of language, identity and culture and meet with two visionary writers and thinkers. One a dictionary maker, the other a philosopher. Intellectuals with tremendous appetite, energy and reach. Linda Mugglestone unravels the complex genius that was writer, editor and poet Samuel Johnson and assesses Johnson's impact on the English language. And was Isaiah Berlin the greatest letter writer of the 20th century? And how have his ideas in writing progressed moral and political thought? Dr. Mark Pottle from Wollstone College, Oxford talks a hero. This is a show about insiders and outsiders, liberalism and democracy, communicators, workaholics, and a journey into words. But first, how does our language shape the way we think?
0: Hello, I'm Linda Muggleson and I'm a fellow in um, English at Oxford University and I've just brought out Samuel Johnson and The Journey Into Words, which is my latest book and I'm, I'm very excited by Johnson as a, a really complicated writer, someone um, he's often underestimated I think in popular opinion, he's usually seen as a person who just fixes the language and I got very interested about, you know, is that really all that's going on? So this book is a bit my journey into Johnson, but also Johnson's journey across what he came to see as this tumultuous sea of words.
1: Linda is it fair to say that Samuel Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language um, I think was published in 1755 defined the English language it was a feat of scholarship it was an extraordinary enterprise that he did it consumed most of his life it's clearly in the canon but is it one of the greatest academic and literary achievements by anyone?
0: Well, it is, it is pretty impressive, considering he actually did this without a computer. Obviously, everything is done by pen. It's really laborious. He defines a dictionary maker as a harmless drudge, and there's a lot of drudgery if you want to think about trying to make a dictionary, as you say, coming out, first of all, in 1755. So he keeps revising to it and adding to it forever. Is it a great work? Well, at the time, he was defined as Dictionary Johnson, so he was seen as having this emblematic link to lexicography. There had been earlier dictionaries. It's by no means the first. The other common cliche about Johnson is, of course, he's father of the dictionary. He's Maybe we could see him as a father of a certain type of the dictionary. There's lots of dictionaries before first monolingual dictionary 1604 so it's a long time before 1755 but actually what he does do is engage with lexicography on a very different level he's very interested in okay how do we know how anything means he provides evidence he really probes nuance he picks words apart in a way that hadn't really been done before so I think that's probably his real triumph actually by this engagement with it but whether it defines the language as a whole well actually we always have to remember that johnson's dictionary is in fact smaller than quite a lot of the other ones that were around at the time so it's not the biggest but it is one that really probes how words mean linda i'm going to throw a difficult question
1: at you do you think a dictionary maker can perfect the language and if if so did johnson do that did he fix it all in some way
0: Well, I think it's a very evocative idea. I think, you know, if we look back through the history of English, and actually including today, there's always a lot of anxiety about language. People are always getting really worried about the way language is changing. And it seems to be human nature that we very rarely see language change as something that is positive or even beneficial in any sense whatsoever. And we can think about all the anxieties we've had recently about emojis or, you know, lol is lol a word. So these these are very enduring concerns. And we can trace them back to, oh, I know the very beginning of the Royal Society is very interesting, where the Royal Society sits. There. One of its first things is not so much thinking about science, but can we fix the language? Can we perfect language? Can we make English, in particular, better? So a lot of the anxieties are actually not so much about the language, but about English, because compared to Latin, which seemed to be very precise and very ruled and very ordered, and of course it was dead, so it wasn't moving anymore, then English seemed to be so variable and so mutable and so there were a lot of works being written you know across the renaissance and into the 18th century about this need to language, both to render it static, to stop it, stop it moving. So there was this kind of a utopian ideal that the perfect language was one that would stay the same for all time. And um, this, this is exactly what Johnson was commissioned to write the dictionary. So he didn't decide to write a dictionary on his own. He's not one of these. That's another very common idea about Johnson that suddenly he thinks, yes, I'll, I'll have my self-appointed crusade to fix the language. But instead he was asked to write a dictionary with a very distinctive, unique-selling it's USP maybe was to try and control language. Whether you can or not of course becomes part of Johnson's quest over the next nine years and in fact we can already see from what he says right at the beginning that he's not totally convinced about this as an enterprise but uh, that's what he's been asked to do so he'll have a go but it's a very interesting idea. As he points out by the end actually utopia may not be all it's cracked up to be if you see it in those terms because if you've got a language that's always the same, how are you talking about anything new? You will always be limited to discoveries of the past. He's, he's very convincing about actually when you think about it, it's going to be very, very tedious to have a language that remains always the same. So he's quite sceptical at times about these popular fallacies about how language might be or what a perfect language might be. Maybe the perfect language is one that enables you to say, you know, and articulate lots of new ideas and new thoughts. And while
1: it was his stated ambition as you describe it, it was a thankless pursuit, or certainly he saw it as a thankless pursuit. He said something on the lines of, I've sailed a long and painful voyage around the world of the English language.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was absolutely enormous because he really wanted to engage with how language was used rather than just sitting there and dictating um, a la Blackadder version of of Johnson's Dictionary maybe just what he thought words ought to mean which would of course be the ideal way of trying to create a, a controlled language if you wanted to go in that direction what he decided to do was investigate how actually words were used and of course that made it so much more complicated and we've got about 14 of these books left where we can see how Johnson read for the dictionary actively reading across each line, annotating, picking words out, picking out quotations, and gathering everything up. So the act of writing a dictionary, as he says, was kind of like an excursion into books. But this idea of the journey, the excursion, the, the circumnavigation of written works was, you know, an absolute... Really, no one, no one had tried it before in English. And of course, Johnson thought in the beginning that he was going to take him maybe three years to write a dictionary. And of course, nine years later, it was eventually completed. So it did become a, a huge project, actually. But also because he just kept reading.
1: Now, one of the questions you ask in your book, Linda, is whether dictionaries are ever neutral. And in Johnson's case, he very much saw himself as defending uh, the English language. He wanted to protect it from foreign invaders. He was, you know, the Americanization of words, some of the French words that have filtered through. He was really on a mission, wasn't he?
0: An interesting line on this. I mean, if we think about the French Academy today, it's on a a similar kind of crusade where it tries to draw out the borders of the language and defend it from invasion. And Johnson spends a lot of time thinking about this and thinking, well, can you actually do this? And he conceives of the language as a kind of nation state and where the words are kind of citizens living in there. And then what happens then when you get new citizens coming in? To what extent, he says, can they become naturalized? Or naturals, you know, when is an alien an alien? Or when, you know, when can it actually be seen as part of a denizen of the nation state? So he, he gets quite interested in this idea. And certainly his patron, Lord Chesterfield, expected a, a very stalwart defence, actually. I think Johnson changes his his mind a little bit as we go through, actually, because he starts picking out French words and he sees them on the border, but actually sees that, actually, throughout history, we have always borrowed lots of words. I mean, lots of people describe English as a kind of vacuum of a language constantly sucking words in as he you know he starts thinking about the French Academy when he's finished the dictionary and says well actually you know the French Academy you can try and defend the boards of the language but actually patrolling it, it is not going to be 100% successful so he's very pragmatic actually he sees that new words are going to come in but he engages with the way in which they are used how why they might be used and some of them he's distinctly negative about the value they might contribute to English but It doesn't necessarily mean, of course, that they don't end up coming in in the end.
1: (laughs) Now, Linda, you cleverly bring up his definition of toleration, which, as the dictionary explains, is allowances given to that which is not approved. Do you think that is a fair way to interpret how he went about his work?
0: Yeah, I think I think toleration became a bit of a key word actually so uh, it's interesting that if we think about the remit with which he started out, he was clearly intended to be much more intolerant of usage, to set himself up almost like as a, if we think about his metaphor as language as a, as a nation state then he was going to be a tyrant or a dictator within this and where toleration was not going to be one of his great features. At the same time, John, Johnson is a very prolific writer and although he's writing this dictionary, at the same time he's writing so many other things. And he's writing moral essays, he's writing drama, he's writing poems. And a lot of these he keeps returning to this idea of power. How should one rightly use power? How much power should anyone rightly exercise over others? And there's a real theme throughout this that tyranny, despotism, is never a good idea. And so, on one hand, he's being appointed to you know, dictate in the world of words and then at the other he's kind of sitting there thinking this is probably not the best way of going on he has this lovely idea of you know yes you can be appointed to the what he terms the chair of instruction but it doesn't mean that anyone's necessarily going to listen to you or obey you completely
1: Now I was really surprised to read how chaotic his life was Linda and in some ways I found it very consoling he lived in pretty much abject poverty for most of his life he struggled he was an outsider. He didn't have it easy. It seemed that everybody left right and centre judged him and judged him quite harshly because he would very odd mannerisms. And in a remarkable way, his biographical details give great comfort because it shows you, despite the
0: odds, you can still achieve. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a way he's a very unconventional hero of letters. He he does begin in you know not the kind of person who you would expect to rise through the literary ranks and become a person who you know is cited so often today. I mean, you know, most days in a newspaper I can come across Johnson's name. He's still a very resonant figure for popular culture today, which is which is extraordinary. But his beginnings were in a very humble bookseller's shop in Lichfield in Staffordshire. He retained his Litchfield accent to the end of his days. He refused to bow to pretension and change, you know, an, a, a form of language that he regarded as his identity. He was. He was really we can see this when he comes to Oxford because he actually came to the college where I teach who's at Pembroke College for 13 months and he's very interesting there yes he, he's, he's not immensely wealthy at, you know at all but um, he's clearly an individual he rebels against lots of rules you know his tutors give him advice on what he's to write and he decides to write a poem on something else instead he's an individual all the way through you know he's someone who deliberately stands outside because of uh, the kind of the lemming like run of life <laughs> and maybe because from that perspective you know you can get a much more distinct vision of um how life actually is so he's a he's a he's a thinker i think right from the very beginning we can see him you know even in his early essays questioning why things are the way they are and this goes all the way through you know why is it